Hello and welcome to the Sports with Luke podcast. Today, I'll be taking a look at the career of Satchel Paige. I'll talk about the Negro Leagues, the hesitation pitch, and why the secret number of the day is 42. Enjoy the show. While Satchel Paige was playing baseball, many ages and birth dates were reported, ranging from 1900 to 1908. Paige himself was a source of many of these dates. His actual birth date, July 7, 1906, was determined in 1948 when Cleveland Indians owner Bill Veek traveled to Alabama and accompanied Paige's family to the county health department to obtain his birth certificate. Satchel was born Leroy Robert Page to John Page, a gardener, and Lula Page, a domestic worker in a section of Alabama known as Down the Bay. Lula and her children changed the spelling of their name from Page, P-A-G-E, to P-A-I-G-E in the mid-20s just before the start of Satchel's baseball career. Lula said, Page looked too much like a page in a book, whereas Satchel explained, my folks started out by spelling their name P-A-G-E and later stuck in the I to make themselves sound more high tone. The introduction of the new spelling coincided with the death of Satchel's father and may have suggested a desire for a new start. According to Page, his nickname originated from childhood work toting bags at the train station. He said he was not making enough money at a dime a bag, so he used a pole and rope to build a contraption that allowed him to cart up to four bags at once. Another kid supposedly yelled, you look like a walking satchel tree. A different story was told by boyhood friend and neighbor Wilbur Hines, who said he gave Page the nickname after he was caught trying to steal a bag. At the age of 10, Satchel was playing top ball, which was what got him into baseball. Top ball was a kid's game that used sticks and bottle caps instead of baseballs and bats to play a variation of the diamond sport. Satchel's mother would eventually comment on how Satchel would rather play baseball than eat. It was always baseball, baseball. On July 24, 1918, just 17 days after his 12th birthday, Leroy was sentenced to six years or until his 18th birthday, whichever came first, at the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers in Mount Meigs, Alabama. It is commonly believed that he was sent off to reform school because of shoplifting. New research shows that it was the rock-throwing battles that Leroy and his friends engaged in against the white boys of the nearby Oakdale School that was the major reason he was sentenced to reform school. The person who taught Leroy to pitch while in reform school was the Reverend Moses Davis. It was Davis, who was also a trustee of the school, who devoted the long hours coaching the boys in baseball, and it was he who struck the deal with the sporting goods store in Montgomery to secure the team's first uniforms. Davis was African-American, as was the entire teaching staff at Mount Meigs. He summed up his years of incarceration, I traded five years of freedom to learn how to pitch. At least I started my real learning on the mount. There were no wasted years at all. It made a real man out of me. After his release, Page played for several semi-pro teams. He joined the semi-pro Tigers where his brother Wilson was already pitching. And he recalled that he once got into a jam in the ninth inning of a one nothing ball game when his teammates made three consecutive errors, loading the bases for the other team with two outs. Angry, Page said he stomped around the mound, kicking up dirt. The fans started to boo him and decided that somebody was going to have to be showed up for that. He called in his outfielders and had them sit down in the infield, with the fans and his own teammates howling. Page struck out the final batter, winning the game. A former friend, Alex Herman, was a manager-player for the Chattanooga White Sox of the minor Negro Southern League. In 1926, he discovered Page and offered to pay him 250 bucks per month, of which Page would collect $50, with the rest going to his mother. He also agreed to pay Lula Page a $200 advance, and she agreed to the contract. The local newspapers, the Chattanooga News and the Chattanooga Times, recognized from the beginning that Page was special. In April 1926, shortly after his arrival, he recorded nine strikeouts over six innings against the Atlanta Blackcrackers. Partway through the 1927 season, Page's contract was sold to the Birmingham Black Barons of the Major Negro National League. According to Page's first memoir, his contract was for $450 per month, but in his second he said it was for 275 
pitching for the Black Barons, paged through hard but was wild and awkward. In his first big game in late June 27 against the St. Louis Stars, Satchel initiated a brawl when his fastball hit the hand of St. Louis catcher Mitchell Murray. Murray then charged the mound and Page raced for the dugout, but Murray flung his bat and struck Page just above the hip. The police were summoned and the headline of the Birmingham reporter proclaimed a near riot. Page improved and matured as a pitcher with help from his teammates, Sam Streeter and Harry Salmon, and his manager, Bill Gatewood. He finished the 1927 season 7-1 with 69 strikeouts and 26 walks and 89 in the third innings. Over the next two seasons, Satchel went 12-5 and 10-9 while recording 176 strikeouts in 1929. Several sources credit his 1929 strikeout total as the all-time single season record for the Negro Leagues, though there is variation among the sources about the exact number of strikeouts. So from 1926 to 1947, so about 20 years, Satchel spent most of his time in the Negro Leagues. There are so many stories about his time in there, so I picked a few of my favorites. On April 29th of that season, he recorded 17 strikeouts in a game against the Cuban Stars, which exceeded what was then the Major League record of 16. Six days later, he struck out 18 Nashville Elite Giants, a number that was tied in the White Majors by Bob Feller in 1938. Due to his increased earning potential, Barron's owner R.T. Jackson would rent Page out to other ball clubs for a game or two to draw a decent crowd, with both Jackson and Page taking a cut. He played in Cuba, and the language barrier was tough for him. Satchel sold a story in which the mayor of a small hamlet asked him in Spanish if he had intentionally lost a particular game. Satchel, who could not understand a word the man was saying, nodded and smiled, thinking he was fawning over him, and then had to flee from the furious mayor. Another story also told by Page says that when he called on an attractive local girl at her home, she and her family interpreted his attentions as an official engagement and sent the police to enforce it, leading Page to flee the island with police in pursuit. Satchel played for teams in Baltimore, Birmingham, Chicago, Philadelphia, and even North Dakota. Playing for Bismarck, he was paid $400 and a late model car for just one month's work. It was Page's first experience playing with an integrated team in the U.S., he helped Bismarck beat their local rivals in Jamestown, who were also featuring a Negro League ace pitcher, Barney Brown. 1934 was perhaps the best season of Page's career as he went 14-2 in league games while allowing 2.16 runs per game, recording 144 strikeouts and giving up only 26 walks in Pittsburgh. But Page had a strong competitor for the best Negro League pitcher of 1934, the 21-year-old Slim Jones of the Philadelphia Stars, who went 22-3 in the league games. In September, a four-team charity benefit doubleheader was played at Yankee Stadium with a second game featuring a face-off between Page and Jones. Page recalls driving all night from Pittsburgh and parking near the stadium, then falling asleep in the car. A bat boy found and woke him, and he got into uniform just in time for the scheduled start. In a game that is described as the greatest game in Negro League history, Page and Jones battled to a 1-1 tie that was called because of darkness. A rematch was scheduled and this time Page and the Crawfords beat Jones and the Stars 3-1. In Wichita, Ray Hap Dumont was establishing a new national baseball tournament, the National Baseball Congress. Dumont invited 32 semi-pro teams, paying $1,000 for Page and his Bismarck teammates to attend. The tournament was held at Lawrence Dumont Stadium in Wichita, Kansas, and offered a $7,000 purse. Churchill added yet another Negro League star to his team, Chet Brewer, the Kansas City Monarchs' ace pitcher. Bismarck swept through the tournament in seven straight games. Page won four games he started, pitched in relief a fifth game, and struck out 60 batters, a record that still held 74 years later. That winter, a Northern California promoter, Johnny Burton, hired Page to front a team called the Satchel Page All-Stars in a game to be held on February 7th of 1936 in Oakland against a white All-Star squad. The opposing team included a number of Major League players out of the Bay Area as well as Pacific Coast League star Joe DiMaggio, who was making his last stop as a minor leaguer before joining the Yankees. Other than the Negro catcher Abel Brooks, Page's team was composed of local semi-pro players. Despite the imbalance in talent, 
Page kept the game to a 1-1 tie through 9 innings, striking out 12 and giving up 1 run on 3 hits. In the bottom of the 10th inning, he struck out 2 more, then gave up a single to Dick Bartell, bringing up DiMaggio. Bartell stole 2nd on the first pitch, then went to 3rd on a wild pitch. DiMaggio then hit a hard hopper to the mound that Page deflected. DiMaggio beat the 2nd baseman's throw to drive in the winning run. A Yankee scout watching the game wired the club that day a report that read, DiMaggio everything we hoped he'd be, hit Satch 1 for 4. DiMaggio later said that Page was the best I ever faced, and the fastest. Satchel played in the Dominican Republic in 1937 along with some of his Negro League teammates. The American players were shadowed by armed guards. Although the purpose of the guards was to protect the players, the players would be fearful that they would be unleashed in anger if Satchel's team won the championship, which Satchel's team did win and they quickly returned back to America. Satchel played in Mexico as well, but it was his time in Venezuela where things went wrong. Pitching in Venezuela, Page felt pain in his right shoulder. After he arrived in Mexico, the pain developed into the first major injury of his career. He tried to pitch through the pain and ended up winning his first game. Two weeks later, he faced the same team and this time Page could barely lift his arm. He managed to go six plus innings in a game that Page's team ultimately lost 10-3. One sports writer wrote that Page looked like a squeezed lemon. Page returned to his hotel room. He recalled that next morning, my stomach got sick with the pain that shot up my right arm. He was examined by physicians in Mexico and in the U.S. One expert told him that he would never pitch again. With his arm injured, Satchel suddenly found himself unemployable. He looked for work as a manager or coach, but was unsuccessful. He eventually played for teams in Kansas, Missouri, the Dakotas, Illinois, and Utah. Large crowds turned out to see Page throw an inning or two, relying on junk balls. But sometime that summer, Page's fastball returned. His catcher, Fraser Slow Robinson, recalled that one afternoon Page told him, You better be ready because I'm ready today. Satchel then surprised him with Robinson expecting a lob. Satchel threw the fastball so hard that he knocked the mitt off my hand. Modern sports medicine specialists suggest Page suffered from partially torn rotator cuff in his shoulder caused by repetitive stress. He also played in Puerto Rico for a team called the Witch Doctors, but ended up walking off the mound during a game because he said he saw a ghost standing next to him. 1940 is when he signed and played for the Kansas City Monarchs, the Negro team he is most known for. Satchel was dominant with the Monarchs, and because of Page's strong gate appeal, there was considerable demand by outside teams to lease Page's services to pitch for a single game. With infrequent league games, the Monarchs owner booked Page to pitch for small-time teens or other Negro League teams at rates ranging from a third of the total receipts to a fixed fee of $250 to $2,000 per game, plus expenses. The owner purchased a Douglas DC-3 airplane just to ferry Page around these outside appearances. Because of the larger gate when Page pitched, the Monarchs owner could also insist on a larger share of the receipts from their road games. By the early 40s, Satchel's estimated annual earnings were $40,000, which was four times the pay of the average player on the Major League New York Yankees and nearly matched the pay of their top star, Joe DiMaggio. Hoping for some publicity for Page, who had received relatively little coverage while pitching in the Hitherlands with the Travelers, the Monarch owner arranged for Page to pitch on the opening day of 1941 for the New York Black Yankees. Appearing in front of a crowd of 20,000 fans at Yankee Stadium, Page pitched his complete game, 5-3 victory, striking out 8. As intended, the contest brought considerable coverage from both the black and white media, including a pictorial by Life magazine. In 1941, the Monarchs won their third consecutive Negro American League championship. The Monarchs won the Negro American League pennant again in 1942. And for the first time since 1927, the champions of the two leagues, Kansas City and Washington Homestead, met in the Negro World Series. Page started Game 1 in Washington and pitched five shutout innings. 
The Monarchs scored their first run in the top of the sixth. In the bottom of the frame, Jack Matchett relieved Page and finished the game, with Kansas City adding seven more runs to win 8-0. Game 2 was played two days later in Pittsburgh, and a highlight was Page's dramatic showdown with Josh Gibson. In the bottom of the sixth, Page relieved starter Hilton Smith with the Monarchs ahead 2-0. In the seventh inning, he gave up three singles and faced Gibson with the bases loaded and two outs. Gibson fouled off the first two pitches, then whiffed on the third. When Satchel told the story in his autobiography, he embellished the story. According to Satchel, the strikeout came in the ninth inning with a run-run lead, and he walked the three batters ahead of Gibson in order to face him. The mythical version was retold by Buck Leonard and Buck O'Neill in their memoirs. In the actual game, the Monarchs added three runs in the top of the eighth to take a 5-0 lead, then Page gave up four in the bottom of the frame to make it 5-4. The Monarchs added another three in the top of the ninth and won 8-4. After two days rest, Satchel started Game 3, which was played in Yankee Stadium. Satchel gave up two runs in the first and was pulled after two innings. Matchett pitched the remainder of the game with the Monarchs winning 9-3, giving them a 3-0 lead in the series. The next series game was played a week later in Kansas City. When the injury-plagued Grays brought in star players from other teams, including pitcher Leon Day, second baseman Lenny Pearson, and outfielder Ed Stone of the Newark Eagles, and shortstop Bus Clarkson of the Philadelphia Stars, the Monarchs played under protest. Day and Satchel both pitched complete games, with Satchel giving up four runs and eight hits, and Day giving up one run and five hits for a Grace victory. The Monarchs' protest was upheld and the game was disallowed. Game four took place in Shy Park in Philly, and Page was scheduled to start, but he did not show up until the fourth inning. According to his autobiography, Page was delayed in Lancaster, Pennsylvania by an arrest for speeding. The Grays had taken a 5-4 lead, and Page immediately entered the game. In the remainder of the game, he did not allow a hit or a run and struck out six while the Monarch hitters scored two runs in the 7th to take the lead and three more in the 8th to win, 9-5 in sweeping the series. Satchel had pitched in all four official games in the series, as well as the unofficial one, going 16 innings, striking out 18, and giving up 8 hits and 6 runs. In 1946, Bob Feller organized the first barnstorming tour to use airplanes for travel for site to site. His tour had been described as the most ambitious baseball undertaking since John McRowland and Charles Comiskey dreamed up their round-the-world junket in 1913. For his team, Feller recruited all-stars from both major leagues. As his main opponent, he asked Satchel to head a team of Negro League all-stars. Feller's team included 1946 American League batting champion Mickey Vernon, Phil Rizzuto, and after the World Series was over, National League batting champ Stan Musial would also join the tour. In addition to Feller, the pitching staff included Bob Lemon. With the help of J.L. Wilkinson and Tom Baird, Page assembled a Negro All-Star team. Feller scheduled 35 games in 31 cities and 17 different states, all to be played in 27 days. The tour would require 13,000 miles of travel. Several same-day multi-city doubleheaders were to be played. Feller leased two DC-3 airplanes with Bob Feller All-Stars painted on one and Satchel Page All-Stars on the other. While Feller's team would face several other opponents, the majority of the games were against Satchel's team. Feller and Satchel would start each game whenever possible and usually pitch one to five innings. Overall, Feller had pitched 54 innings against Page's team and given up 15 runs, an average of 2.5 per nine innings. Page had pitched 42 innings and allowed 18 runs, or 3.86 per nine innings. When Branch Rickey signed Jackie Robinson, a former teammate of Satchel's, he realized that it was for the best that Page himself was not the first black player in Major League Baseball. Jackie started in the minors and had a major league team starting him in its minor league affiliate. Satchel would have probably seen this as an insult. Satchel eventually realized that by integrating baseball in the minor leagues first with Robinson, the white major league players got the chance to get used to the idea of playing alongside black players. Understanding that, Satchel said in his autobiography that signing Jackie like they did still hurt me deep down. I'd been the guy who started all the big talk about letting us into the big time. I'd been the one who'd opened up about major league parks to colored teams.
I'd been the one who the white boys wanted to go barnstorming against. Page and all the other black players knew that quibbing about the choice of the first black player in the major leagues would do nothing productive. So, despite his inner feelings, Page said of Robinson, he's the greatest colored player I've ever seen. It's time for the secret number of the day. The secret number of the day is an obscure or interesting fact from Satchel's career. Today's secret number is 42 and it takes us to 1948. Finally, on July 7th, 1948, with his Cleveland Indians in a pennant race and in desperate need of pitching, Indians owner Bill Veek brought Page in to try out with the Indians player manager Lou Bordreau. On the same day, his 42nd birthday, Page signed his first major league contract for $40,000 for the three months remaining in the season, becoming the first Negro pitcher in the American League and the seventh Negro big leaguer overall. Larry Doby, who broke the color barrier in the American League at the age of 23 that same year Robinson did in the National League, would be a teammate of Page. On July 9th of 48, Satchel became the oldest man ever to debut in the Major Leagues at age 42 years and two days. When asked about his age, he would reply, if someone asked you how old you were and you didn't know your age, how old would you think you were? With the St. Louis Browns beating the Indians 4-1 in the bottom of the fourth inning, Bourgeois pulled a starting pitcher, Bob Lemon, and sent Page in. Page, not knowing the signs and not wanting to confuse his catcher, pitched cautiously. Chuck Stevens lined the ball to left field for a single. Jerry Pretty bunted Stevens over to second. Up next was Whitey Platt, and Page decided to take command. He threw an overhand pitch for a strike and one sidearm for another strike. Page then threw his hesitation pitch, I'll explain that later, which surprised Platt so much that he threw his bat 40 feet up the third baseline. Browns manager Zach Taylor bolted from the dugout to talk to the umpire about the pitch, claiming it was a balk, but the umpire let it stand as a strike. Satchel then got the next guy to fly out to end the inning. The next inning, he gave up a leadoff single, but with the catcher having simplified his signals, Satchel got the next batter to hit into a double play, followed by a pop fly. Larry Doby pinch hit for Page then the following inning. Satchel got his first big league victory on July 15, 1948, the night after he pitched in an exhibition game against the Brooklyn Dodgers in front of 65,000 people in Cleveland's Municipal Stadium. The Indians were up 5-3 and the bases were loaded in the sixth inning of a second game of a doubleheader. He got Eddie Juice to fly out to end the inning, but gave up two runs the next inning when Ferris Fain doubled and Hank Majeski hit a home run. Page buckled out and gave up only one more hit the rest of the game, getting five of the next six outs of fly balls. Larry Doby and Ken Kelter hit home runs in the ninth to give the Indians an 8-5 victory. Longtime Chicago Cubs broadcaster Jack Brickhouse once said that Page threw a lot of pitches that were not quite legal and not quite illegal. They eventually ruled the hesitation pitch illegal, and if thrown again, it would result in a balk. Satchel said, I guess they didn't want me to show up the boys who were young enough to be my sons. On August 3rd of 48, with the Indians one game behind the Athletics, Bardreau started Page against the Washington Senators in Cleveland. The 72,562 people that saw that game set a new attendance record for a Major League night game. Although a nervous page walked two of the first three batters and gave up a triple to Bud Stewart to fall behind 2-0, by the time he left in the seventh, the Indians were up 4-2 and held on to give him his second victory. His next start was at Comiskey Park in Chicago. 51,013 people paid to see the game, but many thousands more stormed the turnstiles and crashed into the park, overwhelming the few dozen ticket takers. Satchel went the distance, shutting out the White Sox 5-0, debunking the assumption that nine innings of pitching was nowhere beyond his capabilities. The Indians were in a heated pennant race on August 20th of that year. Coming into the game against the White Sox, Bob Lemon, Gene Bairdon, and Sam Zoldock had thrown shutouts to run up a 30-inning scoreless streak, 11 shy of the big league record. 201,829 people had come to see his last three starts. For this game in Cleveland, 78,382 people came to see Satchel, a full 6,000 more than the previous night game attendance record. 
to put this in perspective, 78,000 is usually an average NFL game. The largest MLB stadium in regards to capacity is Dodger Stadium in LA, which can hold 56,000 people. Satchel went the distance, giving up two singles and one double for a second consecutive three-hit shutout. At that point in the season, Satchel was 5-1 with a low 1.33 ERA. He made one appearance in the 1948 World Series. He pitched for two-thirds of an inning in Game 5, while the Indians were trailing the Boston Braves, giving up a sacrifice fly to Warren Spahn, got called for a balk, and struck out Tommy Holmes. The Indians ended up winning the series in six games. Satchel ended the 1948 season with a 6-1 record with a 2.48 ERA, two shutouts, 43 strikeouts, 22 walks, 61 base hits allowed in 72 and two-thirds innings. There was some discussion of Satchel possibly winning the Rookie of the Year award. While technically a rookie to the majors, the 20-plus veteran page regarded such an idea with disdain and considered rejecting the award if it were given to him. The issue proved moot, as both versions of the award, by Major League Baseball and by Sporting News, were given to other players. The year 1949 was not nearly as good for Satchel as the year before. He ended the season with a 4-7 record and was 1-3 in his starts with a 3.04 ERA. After the season, with Veek selling the team to pay for his divorce, the Indians gave Page his unconditional release. Penniless, Page returned to his barnstorming days after being released from the Indians. When Veek bought an 80% interest in the St. Louis Browns, he soon signed Satchel. In his first game back in the Major Leagues on July 18th of 51 against the Washington Senators, Satchel pitched six innings of shutout baseball until the seventh, where he gave up three runs. He ended the season with a 3-4 record and a 4.79 ERA. 1952, Roger Hornsby took over the manager of the Browns, and despite past accusations of racism, Hornsby was less hesitant to use Page than Bordreau was four years before. Satchel was so affected that when Hornsby was fired by Veek, his successor Marty Marion seemed not to want to risk going more than three games without using Satchel in some form. By July 4th, with Satchel having worked in 25 games, Casey Stengel named him to the American League All-Star team, making him the first black pitcher on an AL All-Star team. The All-Star game was cut short after five innings due to rain, and Satchel never got in. Stengel resolved to name him to the team the following year. Satchel finished the year 12-10 with a 3.07 ERA for a team that lost 90 games. Stengel kept his word and named Page to the 53 All-Star team, despite Satchel not having a very good year. He got into the game in the 8th inning. First, Page got Gil Hodges to line out. Then after Roy Campanella singled up the middle, Eddie Matthews popped out. He then walked Duke Snyder and Eno Slaughter lined a hit to center to score Campanella. National League pitcher Murray Dickinson drove in Snyder but was thrown out at second base to try to stretch a hit into a double. Satchel ended the year with a disappointing 3-9 record, but a respectable 3.53 ERA. Satchel was released after the season when Beck once again had to sell the team. Satchel once again returned to his barnstorming days with Abe Saperstein. They formed a baseball version of Saperstein's Harlem Globetrotters. Satchel then joined the real Globetrotters when he joined one of their most popular reams, the baseball routine. Satchel would pitch the basketball to Goose Tatum, who would bat the ball with his arms, run around the bases, and slide home safely. Satchel never actually played on the team, though. Although he was making a decent living, Page grew tired of the constant travel. His family had grown with the birth of his fourth child and first son, Robert Leroy. 
Page then signed for $300 a month and a percentage of the gate to play for the Monarchs again. In 1959, Satchel returned to his barnstorming roots and signed a pitching contract with the Havana Cuban Stars who were owned by Dempsey Hovland. Satchel was in and out of baseball, pitching sporadically over the next decade. At the age of 55 in 1961, Satchel signed on with the AAA Portland Beavers of the Pacific Coast League, pitching 25 innings, striking out 19, and giving up 8 earned runs. He failed to record a single decision in his stint with the Beavers. In 1965, Kansas City Athletics owner Charles O. Finley signed Page, 59 at the time, for one game. On September 25th against the Boston Red Sox, Finley invited several Negro League veterans, including Cool Papa Bell, to be introduced before the game. Satchel was in the bullpen sitting on a rocking chair being served coffee by a nurse between innings. He started the game by getting Jim Gosker out on a pop foul. The next man, Dalton Jones, reached first and went to second on an infield error, but was thrown out trying to reach third on a pitch in the dirt. Carl Yastrzemski doubled, but then the next six batters went down in order. In the fourth inning, Satchel took the mound to be removed according to plan by Hayward Sullivan. He walked off to a standing ovation from the small crowd of 9,000. The lights dimmed and led by the PA announcer. The fans lit matches and cigarette lighters while singing The Old Gray Mare. In 1966, Page pitched in his last game of organized baseball, getting some measures of revenge while he pitched for the Carolina League's Peninsula Grays of Hampton, Virginia, against the very same Greensboro Patriots who had been forced to release him before his first pitch back in 1955. Satchel gave up two runs in the first, threw a scoreless second, and then left, never to return as a player in organized baseball again. Peninsula used their backup catcher that day, rather than play their regular starter, a young Johnny Bench. The spectacle of watching Satchel pitch was made all that more entertaining by the expansive pitching repertoire he developed over the years. Until 1938, Satchel threw mostly hard fastballs and an occasional curveball. Before the 1939 season, Satchel suffered an arm injury that robbed his fastball of some velocity. Satchel responded by adding a changeup and experimenting with different arm angles. Then in 1943, Satchel debuted the hesitation pitch. In 1933, while playing ball in Bismarck, North Dakota, the Bismarck Tribune reported that Page used a tricky delayed delivery with great effectiveness. The idea came to me in a game when the guy at bat was all tightened up waiting for my fastball. I knew he'd swing as soon as I just barely moved. So when I stretched, I paused just a little longer with my arms above my head. Then I threw my left foot forward, but I didn't come around with my arm right away. I put that foot of mine down, stomping for a second before the ball left my hand. When my foot hit the ground, that boy started swinging, so by the time I came around with the whip, he was way off stride and couldn't get anywhere near the ball. I had me a strikeout. By the 1950s, Satchel was throwing almost any pitch imaginable, including a screwball, knuckleball, and an ephus. On February 9th, 1971, it was announced that Page would be the first member of the Negro Wing of the Hall of Fame. Because many in the press saw the suggestion of a Negro Wing as separate but equal and denounced Major League Baseball for the idea, by the time that Page's introduction came around August 9th, they convinced the owners and the private trust of the Hall of Fame that there shouldn't be no separate wing at all. It was decided that all who had been chosen would get their plaques in the regular section of the Hall of Fame. Satchel Page died of a heart attack after a power failure at his home in Kansas City on June 8, 1982. He is buried in Forest Hill Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City. In 2010, sports writer Joe Posnanski, running for Sports Illustrated, named Page as the hardest thrower in the history of baseball. He based this in part on the fact that Joe DiMaggio would say that Page was the best he ever faced. Bob Feller would say that Page was the best he ever saw. And Hack Wilson would say that the ball looked like a marble when it crossed the plate. Dizzy Dean would say that Page's fastball made his own look like a changeup. In 1999, he ranked number 19th on Sporting News' list of 100 greatest baseball players and was nominated as a finalist for the Major League Baseball All-Century team. In 2006, a statue of Satchel Page was unveiled at Cooper Park, Cooperstown, New York, commemorating the contributions of the Negro Leagues to baseball.
Now, I don't want to call it unfortunate, but it would have been super cool to see Satchel pitch against the guys in the majors in his heyday. Babe, Garrick, Williams, Musial, those would have been great. He only got to pitch in the majors for six years, but it was so cool to see him go all over the nation and even the continent and see him dominate. Satchel was one of the first players that I learned anything about when I was younger. I think my favorite thing about him is either how he made his outfielder sit down while he pitched, or how every person that talked about him as a pitcher said he was tough to face. I love learning more about him. Thanks for listening to the Sports of Luke podcast. Have a player you'd like to be the next subject? Let me know on Instagram and Twitter at Majerus underscore Luke. Keep an eye out for next week's episode where we talk about Rod Carew.